0: Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I ask this morning that we would actually hear your love towards us. That our hearts would be transformed. Lord, I ask that you give us greater faith. Amen. For those of you who don't know, I used to be a teacher. And when I was a teacher, I taught philosophy to high school seniors. It's one of the things I taught And one of the questions that I would ask them was, have you ever considered letting your grandmother choose your college major? Now, when you ask a high school senior that, you get a startled look. But my point to them was actually to demonstrate that we all have systems of values where we prioritize certain things above others, and we're generally unconscious of those. Now, in that particular question, you have two values do you listen to the opinions of elders? And another value, do I get to choose my own way in the world? And those two values were in competition with the one over the other, albeit unconsciously. It's an interesting exercise. And it's always strange to be confronted with a culture that has a totally different set of values and thinks that ours are all upside down and we think that theirs are all upside down. For example, a few years ago, A few of us were in Uganda, and one of the young men that we were interacting with expressed to me how startling it was that Americans care so much about free speech that we're willing for reprehensible things to be spoken and published. This was confusing to him, that we care more about the right to speak than we do about the quality of what's spoken. It's actually interesting to hear somebody from a different culture think that our values are upside down. It's kind of strange. We actually usually have these things subconscious. And we come in assuming our way of prioritizing things is right and best. And if you were to step back and look at American culture, and people have done this, philosophers, sociologists, historians, you come away with the impression that chief amongst our values is the right to choose our own way in life, the freedom of the individual will. And if you were to say what's second place in the American system of values, it's the idea that each of our lives should be personally fulfilling, full of whatever sort of goodness we like. This is our basic set of values. And we're often blind to the fact that other cultures don't actually think like us. That there's other cultures who actually think that listening to the traditions of elders is far more significant than choosing your own way in the world. It's actually startling to run into those cultures. I bring this up because the gospel passage today comes from a culture with a very different preeminent value. Ours is, I get to choose my own way in the world. The preeminent value running underneath this gospel story is societal honor. This was far more important in that culture than choosing your own way, how you were honored amongst other people. It's not in terms of all the values that one might have, it's not particularly hard for us to understand. Societal honor as a value still has vestiges in the American culture, and you can look back a couple of hundred years, you've all seen Hamilton, to the time when people were willing to duel to the death because of an affront to honor. There's still vestiges of it, and we still remember it from times past. It's not hard to imagine or understand. The culture that Jesus grew up in, the sort of overlay of Jewish, Greek, and Roman culture prized societal honor over all things. When I was an undergrad, I studied Greek and Latin literature, and I remember being startled in a Latin text by the system of patronage, the idea that there is this hierarchy of honor going from Caesar all the way down to the poorest peasant, and every person fits into this hierarchy of honor. And the way that you preserve your place in this system is you have somebody over you, a patron with more honor, and you show deference to them, respect. You go seek their approval, and they sort of overshadow you with their honor. But that that person's also doing the same thing to the person above them, and so on and so forth. And so this reciprocal gift-giving and respect that reinforces the societal honor is woven through every single interaction. I remember being startled by the realization that part of showing respect was showing up at the house of the person who's who was your patron. And in order to show up their house, you had to get there before they had to go to the house of the person that they were showing honor to, and they had to get there before that person had to go to the house of the person they were showing honor to. So if you're at the very bottom of the totem pole, you got to get up at four in the morning and be there waiting before the crack of dawn to have a chance to show respect to the person who's overshadowing you with your honor. This was woven through their entire society and preserving this system of honor was far more important to them than free speech. The right to choose your own way in the world, a life of pleasure and fulfillment. In this system, where you sat at a banquet is of immense importance. Whether you got an invitation to the banquet is of immense importance because every drop of this screams, cements, solidifies your honor in society. Now, interestingly, we actually still care whether we get an invitation to the party. But we care for very different reasons. We care because if we don't get invited, we're personally hurt. They didn't value me. It doesn't cross our mind that this is a public disgrace. That's what would have crossed their mind. We're caring about the same thing, but for very different reasons. When you go into a room where people are watching a movie, we also care what seat we get, right? But the thing that motivates us is which chair is the most comfortable. Where can I see the best? Where can I hear the best? In other words, our value is comfort, fulfillment. They would have far rather the hard chair with no line of sight to the TV and no ability to hear if that chair was the chair of honor. Again, they cared where they sat just like we do, but for a very different value. It's an interesting system. In that system, there legitimately was no such thing as a free gift. Except for within families, everything comes with strings attached. Every invitation expects an invitation in return. Some of you may have encountered systems like this in foreign cultures, where you're startled by the way that people give gifts, and you think this is so different than the way we do things. But everything means something. Because everything is an act of honoring the other, and everything demands reciprocal action. There were free gifts, like I said, and this is an aside, but those only existed within families. And even though that's not the point of this sermon, that actually sheds remarkable light on what Jesus is doing when he teaches us to call God Father. When he says, my brothers and sisters are the ones who do the will of God, he's saying you are all family which means suddenly we can give free forgiveness to one another, free gifts to one another, no strings attached. Because strings were attached to every other act of forgiveness, every other gift, every interaction was a part of this intricate dance where social positions were acquired and cemented. The pursuit of social honor runs under all of it. Those with high honor, they could never invite a low honor person to a banquet. The person couldn't accept the invitation. Even if theoretically, as a high honor person, they receive some benefit by looking like a benefactor, the presence of the low honor person denigrated the banquet and lowered the honor of the event. Besides, the low honor person couldn't reciprocate with an invitation in return because the high honor person could never accept it without lowering their own honor and their shame in issuing an invitation that's rejected. And so these two just steer clear of each other because there's no way we can play on the same playing field. A high-honored person can't honor the low honor person. This, by the way, sheds light on that parable of Jesus where he talks about this king giving a wedding feast for his son and the invitations go out to the nobles of the land and they reject it. And in that society, there is no greater shame than being rejected by those who ought to receive you. And so then where do the invitations go out next? To the low honor people, those sleeping in the ditches, those hurting, the poor, the broken. These parables sort of spring to life when you realize the culture in which they're spoken. It's easy for us who have a different set of values to scoff at a system that doesn't make sense to us. But that's actually not my point at all. Our primary values, honestly, aren't any closer to God's than theirs were. We tend to think they are. And this, by the way, is an aside, don't hear me saying there's this relativization where some all values are equal before God. They're not. But the value of honor was not reprehensible before God, no more than the value of freedom. It's easy to scoff at their system because it's not our own, but that's not my point. My point is just to understand the setting that Jesus is speaking in. And so with that introduction, listen again to what he says. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited to someone at a wedding, by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. The guests at this dinner party must have been frustrated and confused. It's hard for us to hear how forceful this was, but it's like a sledgehammer dropped on their way of understanding the world. He's turning their values upside down. We can actually feel the force of what he's saying if we imagine what it would sound like in our culture with our values. Imagine a dinner party. Imagine Jesus there overhearing the conversation. And then imagine at some point him breaking in and him saying something like, I notice that y'all are greatly concerned with personal fulfillment. I notice that you're greatly concerned with the freedom of speech. Those are are good things. I like those things. But, but, But I don't think you should be worrying about these things for yourself. Actually, here's what I think would be right. You care about freedom of speech? Have you ever gone to a homeless man and given him a voice. You care about personal fulfillment? Have you ever gone to the nursing home and and seen what it would mean for a lady there to have fulfillment in her life? You feel the force of what he's doing with them. He's taking the things they value, but he's saying, and he's not saying these are negative things, he's taking the things that they value, and he's actually turning it back, forwards in the wrong way, all around. He doesn't actually critique the system of honor. Actually implicit in this whole thing is that honor is a good thing. He tells them to honor people. He doesn't critique their system. He actually just critiques who they're trying to benefit with their system. He doesn't tell them that they care about the wrong things. Instead, he tells them that they care about the good things, but for the wrong person, because they care about these things only for themselves he's calling them to use what they have to honor someone else to honor the vulnerable the weak the lonely the sick the tired the poor by the way i don't think you all needed that introduction i think you probably got that from the passage yourself but i think it's a bit richer when we see how forceful this would have been this isn't a side point He's taking what they hold dearest to themselves and he's saying, do you care about those who can't get this thing? So you say, what would it mean to take what we hold dearest to ourselves and say, do we care about those who can't acquire this thing? The desire for honor has, I think, the same root as our desire for fulfillment and freedom. Beneath both of them is this impulse, this desire to have a life worth having. To have a life where we're valued, where we're esteemed, where our life counts for something. It's why we care about freedom of speech. Like, if I don't have a voice, I don't count in the world. It's why we care about the freedom to choose something. If I can't make my own way, am I just a pawn? It's why they cared about honor. None of us want to be a nobody, right? None of us want to have no value. And beneath both these different value systems is actually this deep, deep desire to show that our lives are worth something. They count for something. We matter somehow in the world. We expend, like they did, an enormous amount of energy trying to prove prove to others and even to prove to ourselves that our lives count for something, that they're worth something, that they matter. We expend so much energy trying to actually prove this, secure this. We end up promoting ourselves. We end up using all of our energy to actually thrust ourselves forward amongst our friends and our workplaces and the community as a whole. Because deep underneath is this desperate sense of, I've got to count for something. I've got to count for something. Jesus looks at us and he actually says, that's not a bad thing. Again, he doesn't critique their desire for honor. He just says, have you ever taken that desire and considered those who don't count? In our desperate sense to know that we matter, have we ever looked at the person on the side of the road and say, do they? Have we ever thought about the person stuck in the hospital for months and months and said, does anybody show up and show them that their life is valuable, that they count for something? Again, he's not saying it's wrong to desire that your life count for something. He's saying, have you considered it for the person who's overlooked? the person who's despised, he's saying, have you ever shown the sick, the forgotten, the poor, have you ever shown them that their lives are precious? You hear the force of what he's saying to them. You hear what he's hitting them with at this banquet. I think a lot of us who've been in the faith for a while go, yeah, yeah, that's the the people we're supposed to be. That's the people we're supposed to be. But let's be honest, it's pretty hard to follow that, is it not? It's pretty hard to use our energy, our money, our time to ensure that somebody else's life counts. There's a whole variety of reasons for that. Sometimes it's just plain selfishness. We want to come first. Sometimes it's that we actually have a really hard time believing that Jesus means what he says. Unless a grain of wheat goes in the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And we say that's a pipe dream. Well, we don't say that out loud, but that's the way it feels. Sometimes it's, we're like the rich young man. We just can't fathom life without what we've got. You know, he comes to Jesus, I want what you have. And he says, give it all away. Give it to the poor. And he walks away saddened because he can't bring himself to take that step. We can't imagine what it means to actually give ourselves away to somebody else. Behind a fair amount of it, I think, is honestly just fear. We wonder, if I do indeed give myself away, If I give what I have rather than trying to promote myself, show that I'm valuable, if I seek the vulnerable who can't get value for themselves and I give what I have to make that person valuable, well then, who will value me? And there's this fear that runs through us that we've got to take care of ourselves first, that we've got to actually promote ourselves first to make certain that we don't end up at the end of the day with nothing. If I give myself away, what will be left for me? I think that fear runs through many of us. And so we keep trying to promote ourselves, to push ourselves forward, to secure the voice, to secure the position, to secure the reputation. But all the while, Jesus is saying to us, it won't work. You can push yourself up the rungs of the ladder as hard as you want but those who exalt themselves get humbled. It won't work. You can't squeeze blood from a rock. You can't bring life out of death. We don't have the strength to make our lives count. Yet out of fear that no one will believe that they do, we keep trying over and over. We're driven by habit. We're driven by selfishness. We're driven by self-preservation. We're driven by fear. But with all of our might, we keep trying to do the impossible to show that we matter, that we're valuable, that we count. We disregard those that we're supposed to be loving, and we ignore the fact that we serve a God who perpetually gave his life away. And every time he did, life flourished for all, gave himself away. I want to close with the parable that Jesus tells because Jesus speaks in verse 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 and 11 of a wedding feast. Throughout the Bible, a wedding feast always points forward. This is beautiful. Throughout the Bible, a wedding feast always points forward, and it points forward to the great wedding feast, the feast of the Lamb, the feast that is to come. And when we step back and remember this, we go, wait a minute who's the host of this feast that Jesus is talking about? And of course, at the great wedding feast, the feast to come, God himself is the host. I bring this up because in this parable, Jesus is subtly answering the question we all struggle with. If I don't honor myself, who will honor me? If I don't prove that I'm valuable, who will value me? If I don't show that my life matters, It won't matter to anybody. Jesus is subtly answering that question, and the answer that he gives is simple. The host of the feast already values you. The host of the feast already values you. The answer he is giving is a word that speaks directly to your heart and to mine. God actually already thinks your life is worth something. The host of the feast is standing there saying, I would bring you higher up the table. I would have you come sit beside me. The beauty of this whole passage is that it's not just about giving away what we have to show honor to others. It is clearly that. But that's the second point that he makes. That's the overflow. The first point, the foundation of what he says is that there is actually one who longs to honor you. One who can honor you, who can do the impossible. Consider that for a second. That the host is standing at the feast before you and he's saying, you don't need to elevate yourself. You don't need to prove that your life is worth something. I would elevate you. I would bring you up the table to sit beside me. I would call you honorable and give you all that you cannot acquire for yourself. He's screaming it at us saying, stop trying to do the impossible. We discover as soon as we actually relinquish the desperate sense of I've got to do it for myself, as soon as we simply come to the Lord in humility and faith, that there is one who thinks our life is far more valuable than we've ever thought. One who thinks that you matter more than you've ever dreamed. One who says, I will give you all the honor and glory. This is the promise that undergirds this teaching that you can give yourself away freely to others. I would do for you that which you cannot do for yourself. This is what everything that Jesus teaches rides on, that the host of the feast doesn't hold back the honor that he would give to his children. He just simply says, quit trying to achieve it yourself. Come to me in humility and faith. It's a beautiful promise. It's a promise that we can trust Because it's a promise that comes to us from the lips of one who did what he calls us to. Think of the glory of the story that he tells. Give your honor to those, the vulnerable, the weak, the poor, those who cannot repay you. And then think of the life of Christ. And you go, that's what he did. He's describing himself. He has all the honor and the glory in the world And yet he says, I set it all aside so that I can go to those who could never repay me in this system of exchanges. And I go to them to bestow an honor upon them that they could never acquire for themselves. He descended to the depths of shame in this system to bestow honor on those like you and me who are poor and vulnerable and weak. If you look at yourself and you say, but I'm nothing. But who am I? Do you not hear what he's saying in the parable? Give to those who are nothing. And why does he say that? Because that's what he would do for you. Give you all that you cannot acquire for yourself. My point is that in the cross, we see the Lord Jesus himself doing exactly what he calls us to do. And we realize that if he, were willing, if he was willing to back up his words with this action, then his promise that the Father would honor us is a promise we can bank on. It's a promise we can trust. And so when you say, but I'm nothing, I've got to actually promote myself. I've got to do it for myself or nobody will care about me. Hear the Lord saying, no, no. The Father already values you. And you say, how do I know? And he says, look at the cross. Look at the cross. Amen.